Welcome to the Live Well, Perform Better podcast, brought to you by Below the Line. My name is David Duggan, and I am part of a team made up of experts from the worlds of business, elite sport, adventure, and health and well-being. We are coaches, mentors, and advisors to some of the world's biggest companies and organizations, as well as smaller businesses, entrepreneurs, and people looking to make their mark on the world. Our guiding mantra at Below the Line is live well, perform better. What does that mean, you might ask? Good question. Maybe the easiest way to describe it from our perspective is finding the formula that works for you when it comes to things like looking after your physical and mental health, running your business, developing your career, leading your people, or simply being able to show up as brilliantly as possible into your own life, both for yourself and those around you. That's why each week I sit down with a member of our team or an invited guest for a conversation that focuses on the question, what do the words live well, perform better mean to you? This question is a way into exploring with people from a range of different backgrounds, industries and disciplines, what are the practices, techniques, habits or ideas that they use to help them to show up and be at their best in all areas of their lives, whether that's as CEOs, leaders or managers, or as parents, family members or friends. We keep it short and sweet so that you can extract all the good stuff and get on with the rest of your day and hopefully put some of this knowledge, experience and expertise into play for yourself. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by another very special guest, Robert Mokila Forig. Robert is the founding director and CCO at Sigmar Recruitment, one of Ireland's leading recruitment businesses, whose work and career journey has taken him down many varied and interesting paths. A thought leader in the area of employment trends, talent recruitment and the future of work, he is the organiser and driving force behind initiatives such as National Employment Week, and the Talent Summit, fast becoming one of the world's largest conventions on organisational talent development. Robert gave me a fascinating insight into the very personal experiences that drive his work, the story of Sigma recruitment and the many risks and decisions taken by the business that have come to define its culture, growth and success, as well as what he has learned from meeting and interviewing some of the most inspiring and influential people on the planet. Please subscribe and check us out at www belowtheline.ie where you can stay up to date with our podcast as well as exclusive online events and sessions including our press pause coaching community and our upcoming story coaching programs thanks for listening and see you next week Look, i'll kick in with the first question which is um please tell me why do you do what you do I've largely been institutionalized for the last 20 years, David, to be frank and to be honest, and possibly unemployable. Um, so that's the short answer. But I guess the world of recruitment, I guess the initiatives that we lead and drive and the purpose behind them um, runs very deep with me, I guess. And uh, I think my introduction to recruitment, uh, I went into a recruitment company. Uh, on Grafton Street after finishing college. I remember going in, I was working in hospitality at the time and uh, I tried to cobble a suit together. So I got like a denim shirt, I got a pair of jeans and a denim jacket. And I found a denim tie and bumped into pals of mine on the dart going in. Got known as the Wrangler suit man and uh, went in with my best foot forward, met a guy in the agency, asked what would you like to do? And I thought what he did was quite interesting. Um, little did I know, 
uh, that that would kind of set me on a journey um, that's lasted for 20 years, as I say. So, so I went in, I was told that recruitment wasn't for me, although I thought it, I was for it. And uh, I was guided off to work in, in, in sales and then I actively sought out recruitment. And um, my side hustle when I worked in sales was a referral program, made more commission to doing so than I did in my day job. And um, yeah, I joined a, a company, Marlboro Recruitment, was there for six months. And six months later, um, it folded. And from the ashes of that organization, Sigmar was born. So as part of the founding um, team at Sigmar, um, wasn't an equity holder, but was the most junior, youngest member of that team. And I think in those early days, David, my memory really is, is that I was backed, I was given space space to fail. I was given autonomy, uh, given support. And uh, we certainly felt like an underdog and we went about trying to grow some market share at that time. And initially, and ever since, it's been an adventure. Um, I engaged with, I guess, in the early days, the, the job of recruitment and just how enterprising it is to turn like a brand, or not even a brand at that time, we we're trying to build a brand, but turn like your time, your toil, your initiative a handful of tools into value um, and that cycle of value creation through not having a product just simply delivering a service um, and having two customers um, the consumer the candidate and the, the 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 business being our client the employer so again that whole cycle of value creation um, I found that very exhilarating I found it being effectively the essence of enterprise of turning your time every day into a cycle of uh, I guess value and revenue creation um, and, and certainly got got onto that spiral and that was a big driver for me in the early days and then was given breaks and again a huge dollop of luck over the years and I think a big part of that 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 that, that stage of the journey David kind of culminated when Sigmar kind of grew to being probably one of the top five recruitment companies in Ireland and Again, I was given opportunity very early on. We were acquired by a business called Newcourt, which floated in Dublin and London, and they funded us to grow. So we went about kind of international growth organically, and we made a number of acquisitions. And the first acquisition that we made was a, like an engineering contracting business, like a 10 million turnover business. Again, I was, I was appointed as a non-exec onto that board at 24, whatever it was, and again, it's a huge kind of belief that has been backed. Uh, but also I grabbed all those opportunities and put my hand up at every stage. And uh, we had some big, big failures um, as, as, as one does. But again, every time we kind of stepped forward, we were creating momentum and uh, we really felt we were doing something very unique at that time. Um, and again, it only got more interesting as the years went on. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. Um, you mentioned there at the start, um, you know, this world of recruitment um, on the face of it. Yes, it's about putting people in jobs and all that entails, but you're right. It, it is something that runs very deep. You know, if you think about the psychology of work and, you know, the importance of dignity in work and all that type of stuff. And um, it seems to me that you, in terms of, you know, what you do in Sigmar and what you do outside of Sigmar that, you know, you, you've connected to that purpose quite deeply. Um, and that does inform an awful lot of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Is that 
right or what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's two kind of ends to that spectrum of purpose. One is deeply rooted in me as a person, as an individual in my background. And then the other end of that kind of lofty uh, kind of moonshot, I guess, in terms of why we do what we do. Uh, we're very, very clear on that, David. And again, it's not something that we try to artificially create and wrap around our service offering or our commercial business. It's the central pillar of what we do and what's unique about the Sigmar, I believe. So I think on the personal end, certainly growing up in uh, a large family in, uh, in Baldoil, um, again, employment when I was a child was very patchy um, for, my, for my family. My dad was an artist and again, uh, was very kind of kind of gig orientated. So we never really had kind of that stable income um, and would have grown up in a very working class environment. Uh, for me, there were kind of two routes out of that that my mum would have driven into us over the years. One was education and the other one was, was, was work. Uh, and again, I have a twin brother. He went down the academic route and became a, kind of a professor in dentistry. And I certainly engaged and ran with the, the the work side of that spectrum but growing up like we went to a school out in Southside Closh to own uh, in a good academic school uh, me and my brothers we we cleaned the school um so again to to kind of again to to, to get money I guess uh, for for school books to be honest so that was a deep lesson in humility uh, but also in kind of having to graft I can graft hard uh, and that was kind of drilled into us at a very early stage. I think when I think back, actually, when my mom got a job, a stable job as a nurse for the first time, we were kind of early teenagers. And that difference in having kind of patchy, um, I guess, kind of non-sustaining income to having certainty around income was a big, big changer for us as a family you know and just what that created and I, I remember that very very clearly so that initial gap between being employed and unemployed is a huge gulf so you mentioned the dignity and everything that that brings I witnessed that I grew up in an environment I'm a product of that environment David so I think that's one of the kind of key routes in terms of job activation recruitment uh, and employment that runs very deep with me um, so that's kind of one end, I think, that anchors me in this kind of world and in this space and gives me that deep interest. On the other end of the spectrum, I guess it's probably the next chapter in the Sigmar story, uh, David. So the business, um, after it was bought by Newcourt in 2005, um, the parent company got involved in property, took on a lot of debt, got involved in a student accommodation business. Um, it got caught out badly when the financial crash hit. Uh, we remained profitable. We were very much in growth mode. Um, and again, parent company was forced into receivership. So that forced our hand at that time where we tried to buy the business from Newport. So we went through a, a process trying to kind of fundraise and trying to seek investment, uh, institutional, private, personal, whatever we could at the time. And uh, we sourced one backer in town and we were on the kind of the cusp of buying the business from the parent company. Um, that, um, that that plan fell out of bed at the final stage due diligence. So it was a Friday, um, myself, AD, Frank, and our non-exec at the time were in the boardroom on Hume Street. And really the North Star for us at that time was to kind of keep our people employed. Again, it was a very clear purpose for us. That was our, 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 uh, our North Star at the time. 
with an internal payroll uh, that was uh, coming the following Friday, and we had a big contractor payroll. So we tried to secure the whole business, and the deal fit out of bed at that time. So that was probably one of the lowest points in our in our probably journey. And again, we just looked at each other and said, "Look, what are we going to do here?" So we committed to try and raise what we could over the course of the weekend, and simply to secure the internal payroll. Now, we had all taken big cuts in the business. Uh, again, we brokered a lot of deals with suppliers, and again. The spirit and the driving force at that time was, again, driven by AD, to be very honest. And his mantra to us was that no one deserves a pay cut, but everyone deserves a stable job. And that just became, every decision was anchored around that. Every 500 euro we spent was a portion of one of our colleagues' salaries. So we really were in fight mode. Um, and again, our industry fell off a cliff over the course of that couple of weeks. So demand reduced by about 70%. Uh, so again, we're living through it, we're trying to fight through it, we're also trying to secure the business and really secure the internal payroll. So we came back in on the Monday, literally like coming back from your confirmation, David. I was like, how much did you make? How much did you get? You know, we wrote it down the back of an envelope and we knew we secured the uh, the, the, the payroll. So uh, there was a bit of a sea change, I believe, in, I think, what we felt on that day. Uh, certainly a renewed sense of shared have a purpose and shared commitment to success, I suppose. Uh, so we said we would look to expand that and see if everyone in the business could experience that. So we gave an option to all of our staff that day to invest in Sigmar against a backdrop of uh, like reduced demand for our services, real certain uncertainty in the marketplace. Uh, and over half of our staff invested. So people sold cars, people remortgaged, people invested their savings against that backdrop. So that one act of having, I guess, putting your, your money where your mouth is and having real belief in oneself and the brand, in your team, in our journey, in our, I guess, our position and, um, and what we were doing at that point um, gave us like a huge, a huge amount of, I think, the, the current DNA that we have today in Sigma. And I think we created a culture where people simply acted and behaved like founders in the business and that force became again a very unstoppable force but it actually brought us back to probably the spirit of Sigmar when it was set up that we'd come from being part of the largest recruitment company in Ireland to be a startup uh, from being part of a publicly listed kind of group uh, with international um, kind of capability and again, a known brand in the marketplace to now being this kind of Sigmar 2.0, if it were. So we're a much smaller organization where we're now kind of kind of founder-led. We were privately owned, um, but we felt like underdogs. Like that underdog mentality kicked in once more and we went about proving that to the marketplace. So the next phase, um, I think, was, was really interesting. Very early on after the management buyout, we, 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 we again, felt very deeply around the unemployment that we were going through at the time. Uh, we felt we'd do something about that. So we said that we would look to kind of create a community of employers to see how we could build capacity to employ more people and to see how the government could support our client base and employ more people. So we met with them. We met with 100 HR directors. We asked them the question, what can the government do? We brought those recommendations to government. Uh, government accepted this 10-point plan that we had uh, that we developed uh, with our community. Uh, and then uh, over the next probably two years, about seven of those recommendations were ultimately introduced to government policy. 
went on to create tens of thousands of jobs. So again, we felt really good about this and we've, there's a lot of goodwill towards the brand. So we then set up National Employment Week. So this is like an initiative, again, a for-purpose initiative. Um, I'll come back to the reason I use the word for-purpose. Um, that, we, that we could have a say in understanding the uh, unemployed candidates that we worked with, but also understanding the demand in the marketplace, that we could help create value within that cycle. So we set up National Employment Week. This was a conference series we ran every year where we pick a topic every day and bring in speakers. We're begging, borrowing, stealing, not really stealing people, but you get the spirit of it, uh, to try and create momentum around job activation. Uh, so we ran that for about four years. And then we kind of, we brought the kind of conference series into one main conference as the unemployment, um, I guess, crisis uh, improved and we focused it on talent. Uh, so from National Employment Week, Talent Summit was born. So we moved from job activation as the purpose to enhancing the working lives of people as the world of work was changing. So technology was the big enabler for change at that point. But clearly over the last 10 years since we began this journey, uh, Talent Summit has grown to become not just the largest HR leadership conference in Ireland, but we ran it there recently in the convention center. And I believe it's been the largest HR conference in Europe over the last two years. So it's built a lot of kind of goodwill, a lot of, um, a lot of um, uh, yeah, a very strong, engaged, active community uh, where we look to share thought leadership to really enhance the human experience of work. And it's become very front and center, I guess, since the pandemic. But if I bring it back to why we call it a four purpose initiative. So again, it doesn't generate profit. Like again, we run it and it's, uh, it's, it's run at cost pretty much. Uh, but since we set it up, we used to call it not-for-profit. But we and Sigma are very much for profit. I am very much for profit. Um, so we are very, very clear that this for-purpose initiative, such as Talents, uh, again, keeps us close to the community that we serve. Um, so we do have a commercial interest. But again, I think we've reverse-engineered this, that the driving force for Sigma is very much built around enhancing the human experience of work and it has been for the last decade this isn't something we've just introduced since the pandemic uh, and we've put our money where our mouths are very much like our management buyout uh, that we've invested heavily in this um, to kind of create awareness to share thought leadership uh, and again we get commercial benefit from that and through the relationships that we create around it and also through the thought leadership that we're very privileged uh, to get access to through having some of the kind of world's thought leaders on all of these topics, a lot of kind of global, um, uh, global leaders, I guess, uh, kind of speak at the conferences over the years as well, that it sharpens our pencil when it comes to services that we deliver and also gives us a good foot and kind of lens into the future of work uh, as well. So we help our customers navigate that through the services we provide. So in many ways, it enriches the services. It creates a community that's very engaged with what we do and all built around one central pillar. Uh, part of that personally is deeply rooted in my background for me. And it means different things to some of our folks, but we're immensely proud of it. Um, and again, it helps obviously internally with uh, engagement and retention and all the challenges that we're all facing at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. And it, it's interesting talking to you or listening to you talk about 
National Employment Week and the Talent Summit and this idea of for purpose, because the irony was, if you decided we're going to set up a conference and we're going to try and make a ton of money out of it, you know, it probably wouldn't have worked. But you've connected to something that's very deep within you, both personally for you and the organization. And the rest has kind of taken care of itself in a way. Um, it's just a, it's a fascinating way to, to look at it, I think, because uh, as I say, you know, the, the commercial, the commercially minded person might say, well, let's let's make sure that we make a ton of money out of this. But of course, it's like, no, let's just connect with why we're doing with doing it because in some ways that that allows us to forget about that stuff and, and we you know the opportunities will, will accrue as a result but let's not let's not go into it thinking like that but you know something and i know it sounds cliche saying that david but like we were challenged like some of our non-executives uh we've subsequently uh entered into a strategic partnership with a french company uh, who are now majority owners of our business and again when you look at people from the outside and how they view it, it's only then you really get an appreciation for what it stands for and how it's perceived in the marketplace and also the impact it has. Um, so we would have had some internal dynamics where people are saying, why are you spending money on this? Why are we doing this? Why are we getting distracted by this? Um, and people talk about being a purpose-led organization. Like we were steadfast because I think always the right thing to do or the best thing to do rather is the right thing to do. And we felt when um, this was like a national crisis, this was born of a national crisis. We felt we had a voice, David, uh, and we stepped into it. Um, and again, we did it in the national interest and for no other purpose. Again, we stumbled into it. Uh, we felt it was the right thing to do. And we felt good about it. We personally felt good about it. And our people felt good about it. And for me, that was enough. Um, so again, we probably would have asked and held up a mirror at certain stages saying, look, is it worth it as we kind of uh, progressed with it? But you mentioned, again, a common kind of fan of, of yours and mine, Mike. Uh, so Mike joined our organization. So Mike McDonough was, he was the managing director of one of our competitor organizations. And he joined us there recently. And it's only when you see his perception and his kind of experience from the outside in and now how deeply he's engaged with it, looking at the next generation of how we're going to kind of drive it forward and grow it. Uh, and even our French colleagues, so we had like a, a delegation over France uh, with a delegation from NASA, for example. And again, when I get feedback from NASA saying how cool it is that they're going to send their folks over every year. And again, they'll help us in any way they can. Uh, you just see the goodwill come to life. Uh, and I think sometimes when you see that goodwill in action, uh, it's very, uh, yeah, it's very hard not to kind of see it. We don't draw and measure direct lines around kind of the kind of customary kind of conversion, all that type of stuff. Like again, that comes off it. I can track and trace some of the deepest relationships I personally have, the largest customers contracts that we have from these initiatives. But again, we don't do it for that reason. Those fall out from it. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, I think ultimately this is what being a purpose-driven organization means is that you, you stick steadfast to that purpose. Uh, because that's not a fad it's not something that comes and goes um, and this is something that's that's seen a decade out uh, and we'll see many more to come the below the line strap line is is live well perform better and i'd love to know just from your own perspective what does that mean to you live well perform better um i think it's the fact that it's not a destination that we're constantly looking to drive and step forward um in itself is is a, is a motivation but I think the last couple of years have taught us a lot around the question of sustained performance, hasn't it? Um, and again, if I think of living well, 
uh, it would have been this kind of early kind of hustle porn where people were perceived to work like ridiculous hours to constantly be there uh, and that was a sign of of success and a lot of influencers would have promoted that um, I think we've balanced that over the last two years and one of the big winners has been the, the other kind of I think personal well-being um, but again I think it runs much deeper than than like personal kind of physical mental emotional well-being and for me when I think about my world the kind of the world of work David like I often visualize an organization being a brick wall and within that brick wall the individual bricks are the human capital so look you've you've a lot of experts speak in your podcast like you guys do great work around the kind of the holistic kind of well-being so that's within the individual brick but if i look at what we've lost as we've distributed our folks over the last two years it's really what binds the bricks it's the cement it's the social capital it's the relationship capital uh, and i think that's what's been broken as we've dispersed those individual bricks instead of individual locations so when i think about living well and performing well i think about relationships i think about my personal journey in sigmar uh, i co-led the mbo with two very dear friends of mine ad and frank i think often friendship is under 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 underestimated when the chips are down that friends show up for each other um, and there's a lot of trust and there's a lot of things that again we probably don't measure don't fully appreciate when it comes to friendship so i think the quality of the relationships um amongst those we care about and perform with uh, on a personal on a business level and a societal level um within all of our units i think if we can keep those relationships well uh, i think that's a basis for ongoing or sustainable performance I love that um, image or analogy of the, the bricks in the wall. Um, what do you see being the main challenges or the next, what do the next six to seven or six to nine months hold for, hold for organizations or businesses, do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, usually people give that answer, but they don't have an answer. Don't they? They, so my view and my concern is that like we've had a stab at hybrid when we had the option to return. Uh, I think the rhetoric of those who believe we should convene, so from the employer side, has softened as the power has shifted from the employer to the employee. So I think this great resignation has changed the whole dynamic. I think while it still is bright to have 10 in the evening at the moment, I think the season will change. I think that power dynamic will shift once more and we'll see a very different version of hybrid work um, as employers get their voice once more and assert themselves once more. Uh, I think with economic kind of uncertainty on the horizon, I think that that will change things. Um, but I believe when we consider work, there's a number of components. I think we have the workforce, workplace, and then work practice. Uh, I think workplace, it's clear, it's a choice. And I think the fact that there's a choice right now on one side of that dynamic amongst the workforce, is determining a lot around where we are right now as that choice shifts back to the employer we'll see a very different um sustained hybrid type of environment um i think the work practices need to change i think we're operating on one operating system and we have done for the last uh extended period uh post or 
mid or whatever stage rather with the pandemic right now. But I think it's like changing from like an Apple operating system to an Android, like to sustain hybrid work, work practices needs to be deeply considered. They need to be different and not a different version of what was when we were in person. Uh, and it worries me, quite frankly, around like we don't have enough evidence or data to understand what deeply individualized, isolated work means for people. And when I think about performance, I think about behaviors, I think about like how I would like to influence those around me. I often think about my kids, David, I have three young girls. And my baseline for any behavior, say within Sigmar, uh, is this, at every induction I run, I ask people to always remember this, that to first of all, visualize the most vulnerable loved one. So I do that and I think of my kids. And then I think of every engagement somebody has with me or their experience of me and my presence. Like I would hope that I dealt with them as I would hope my most vulnerable loved one was dealt with within that scenario. And for me, that's our baseline for empathy. And if we action based upon that empathy, that shows compassion. So I think we need to understand that um, for ourselves, for our teams, but also for our, our colleagues. And when I think about hybrid work and where we're going next, would I choose remote work for my kids? The answer to that question is no. And I think a lot of people would answer the same question. So although it works for me and people in different stages of life, within different sectors and industries, it's not equal, it's not balanced, uh, and nor is it sustainable for a lot of industries, I believe. So what's next starts now. Uh, and I think if we're looking at the, uh, the kind of next chapter of work, I think it needs to be deeply considered. It needs to be kind of centered around the individual experience for individuals, uh, which is more like people talk about the war for talent. And again, I don't mean to use the, the, the expression very mindful of, of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, but sticking with that long used term, um, I think the next phase is very much Again, I think the war's been lost, quite frankly, uh, and I think talent's definitely winning uh, right now. But uh, it's it's really in the trenches. It's a hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's not something you can kind of just like throw in an employer brand and go to market and advertise. This is a question of kind of engaging, acquiring, retaining, and sustaining the performance of people, which is ultimately what the next chapter of work is and what work is in itself. Uh, we need to think radically different and it needs to be framed around the individual experience and what that means. Um, and then it needs to be sustained based on those needs. Um, but again, I think the option and the choice that people have is what's determining um, this stage of kind of attrition and kind of like new needs. Um, and again, I think uh, as choice to reconvene or if it's forced upon us, I think, for a whole new operating system of work. You spoke about there, just to use that phrase, sustaining the performance of people. I'm curious to know, in terms of sustaining your own performance, is there any practices or habits or anything that you engage in to help you stay at your best and be able to show up and do all the many things that you do? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be big into sports. I'd say when team sports wouldn't have grown, I wouldn't have participated, but I started coaching my, uh, my girls' uh, Gaelic football team and I find shouting at eight-year-olds <laughs> for an hour is <laughs> a really good way of de-stressing and sustaining um, part of your performance. So I'm joking, but um, 
yeah, personally, I think, yeah, to always look for something new. Like, again, I think to, to, to challenge and to step forward is very important. And again, quite often, like space is created for us, as I mentioned in my own story, or we create space. I think it's really important that we continuously look to create space. Uh, and also, I think, to try different things. Uh, again, if I look at some of the moments from say, my 20-year journey to date, uh, that I've been very privileged um, to experience. Uh, all of those, or nearly all of those, came from initiatives that that I founded, or co-founded, or led, or created, or 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 momentum I created. Uh, so a lot of it didn't find me, and therefore it creates luck, it creates opportunity, but creates moments and experiences. Um, so somebody asked me the story of. Where the talent summit where did it start and i actually thought it through and i just remember one example in sigmar when we were setting up um a pharmaceutical recruitment desk in cork 19 years ago i went down to run an event to engage with them wholesale instead of going and picking up client by client so we're running an event actually on well-being uh, it wasn't very uh what uh, wasn't in the public um, kind of domain back then, but uh, so I invited 60 uh, uh, clients to an event, brought down a speaker, went down to myself and two colleagues, went down in, in a car, uh, Fort Mondeo, we filled it with the cheapest red wine, we got the smallest boardroom at the cheapest hotel in Cork. Um, we used to think we were miserable, but now I think people call that bootstrapping, you know, so we were bootstrapping, David, we went down. And I remember practicing my lines, you know, I was a nervous wreck. And like my opening line was, for those who don't know, know me, my name is Robert McGillifoddy. And then my gag was, uh, yes, you heard it right, Robert McGillifoddy. And then the gag with the name. So I went down, um, went down to the event. We um, stood there, the time to start passed, and two people showed up. Um, so again, I stood up, I gave my opening lines, uh, we scored the red wine, we came back to Dublin the next day, we had tails between our legs, uh, red teeth, red lips, um, and uh, we were, uh, yeah, I, I was mortified. We went out for a staff dinner that evening, and I remember one of the directors come up to me, Helen, and said, well done on the event yesterday. I said, are you taking the piss? Like, that was like, an embarrassment, I'm deeply embarrassed, I'm mortified. He said, no, well done. I said, no, like, that was an embarrassment, like, really, really embarrassed. It just says, look, who else tried to set up a new division or tried to do something different to engage our clients or develop our brand in a new location? Like, you look at the challenges around like a new industry that we're trying to penetrate in a new location uh, and being an unknown um, player in that marketplace. Uh, I just scored a bit more red wine that evening and I made peace with it, and that was it. But again, I look back, again, being encouraged to fail. Um, I think was a big thing, and I, I didn't, I didn't see it. And it literally was twenty years later, walking back from the convention center, chatting to someone. I just remember this story, and I think that's when some of those seeds were sown. Um, so, to answer your question, I think, yeah, to step forward, to try things, create momentum, um, and they, like fuck up royally. Um, and again, um, it's, it's. Uh, I think it's important to continuously to try to create those moments and those experiences and those initiatives and those. Kind of new, particularly in the Me Too marketplace. Um, I think personally, I found that being very motivational and very um, uh, to try and aspire to be something different in the Me Too marketplace has been a big driver and it's definitely sustained my personal motivation, my performance. Um, and then obviously on the, the, the family side to keep those 
experiences equally um, as as interesting, I think, uh, for the family to create those memories is very important. And, uh, and to make sure that you get the balance. Obviously, with physical health, again, I'd go for a run every day and uh, uh, I would do um, uh, yeah, a little bit of kind of pad work and stuff like that, you know. So, uh, again, I'd, I'd definitely do a lot of personal kind of fitness stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think getting, creating those experiences and those memories and those moments for your colleagues, for your family, uh, and for yourself, uh, and they are the standout things that I think that you look back on your career, you won't remember the mundane kind of work until 11 o'clock for whatever project it was, but those kind of new things and new experiences, I think are really important to sustain motivation. I've uh, two more quick questions for you. Uh, so I have seen you, as I said earlier, uh, like on webinars or on stage at the Talent Summit, and you've gotten to interview and meet some of the most incredible people in the world. You know, you mentioned NASA. I've seen people from CERN, Bob Geldof, I'm thinking of former Taoiseach here in Ireland. What has that taught you about those people that you have come in, into contact with? Is there anything that separates them from, quote unquote, mere mortals? Or what's been your abiding memory of some of those experiences? Yeah, I think often privilege is blind to those who are privileged um, so some of it was simply conversations that I would have had with uh, again the likes of Monica Lewinsky and uh, other kind of TED speakers Ken Robinson and uh, again a number of former Taoiseach and presidents and stuff um, I'm just back from the States um, we had the privilege of having Bertie Hearn with us for a week on a trade mission uh, David um, seeing Bertie in action and just seeing his how he engages on a one-to-one -one level like it was a master class in leadership it was a master class in decency it was also a master class in being graceful um and i never expected that from him um seeing him the attention the time he gave to everyone i think i'd summarize it like this people are always more excited to meet the likes of bertie Hearn than he is to meet them quite frankly. And I think that's the case for most of the speakers who've spoken or have interviewed across Talent Summit and Gateway and our Boston College events. Um, some of them will let you know that it's your pleasure to meet them. There's a very small amount of them who actually make you feel like it's their pleasure to meet you. Bertie Hearn is one of those. Ken Robinson was one of those. Um, and again, the experience in their presence and how they made you feel um, is what creates those moments between the moments uh, that creates a warmth, creates a unique engagement. And I think we can learn a lot from that on a human basis um, around personal skills. And I think looking at the next iteration of the world of work and the fragmentation of that social capital that we spoke about, I think it's skills like those that we badly need to kind of repair and to recreate relationships. Um, and again, I think that will that will that will stand us all in good stead. So I think examples like that really stand out for me. Mm, fascinating. And then lastly, I know you've had another successful talent summit re um, just uh, last month. You've just put that to bed. But what's next in terms of talent summit or Sigmar in general? What's coming up for you guys on the horizon? Yeah, yeah, I think I mentioned we've gone through two stages of being a kind of a startup or a restartup after the management buyout uh, and that underdog mentality uh, kind of kicked in on both occasions. I think it suits us being the challenger brand. Um, more recently, we've uh, again entered this relationship with Group Adequate, who are like a, a global Euro billion 
euro group uh, we've exciting kind of plans for international expansion from marketplace growth here uh, and i now see us simply being a global underdog and the global challenger brand brand uh, so that certainly excites us and uh, yeah we've serious ambition to scale and i think our services that have never been in more demand uh, i think the impact of talent and uh, talent acquisition and talent services uh, really are what's creating the competitive advantage for business globally right now so i'm deeply engaged with that and deeply motivated by that uh, talent summit will remain that north star for us uh, as i've mentioned this will continue to be um the kind of probably central pillar around our purpose as an organization um, we've plans to um, expand that internationally uh, looking at a, a larger um a larger conference next year and uh, again i think to create those moments for our delegations and the experiences and i'm thinking very different around the content curation as well david that we can create the space for people to convene uh, and create those those moments and conditions for relationships to spark and to enhance and to for people to reconnect i think it's it's never been more important and that's one of the lessons from running talent summit this year is that there was a huge demand for that type of engagement so i think very differently around how we create the conference for next year maybe expand it into a two-day conference uh, while protecting the integrity of the community uh, and to ensure that we don't kind of sell to them that we simply create a space for them to convene and do their thing Fantastic, uh, Robert. That's been an absolutely fascinating tour de force uh, of a chat with you. I'm delighted um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. So thanks very, very much. My pleasure. My pleasure, David. Thanks.